0: To be honest, I was scared reaching out for help, because I was like, this could totally ruin
2: my career. Somebody to have a more proactive approach, and that he was coming to me to be that person. They found him, and he committed suicide. I just started screaming. I just felt responsible.
0: Hello, everyone. I am Tim Lawson founder and host of the One Too Many Veteran Suicide Project. Today I have Andrew O'Brien, who tells a very interesting story about something he witnessed during his deployment and how it affected him after that deployment and the path of pain, struggle, and an attempt of suicide that ended up being. Andrew travels doing st- speaking engagements about his experience and his attempt of suicide. So it's, it's nice to have a, a fellow veteran who is, is taking a proactive approach to reaching out and trying to comfort people that are going through the same struggles. It's a, it's nice to have that same mindset come onto the show and stick and share their stories. Um, Again, like I mentioned every episode, please respect my guests please honor their 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 courage to come forward and share and share their experiences and what they went through because the their objective along with mine is to just try to let someone else know that they're not alone and that suicide doesn't have to be an option that there are people who care that there are steps you can take for recovery and that there is, "Quote unquote light at the end of the tunnel." I will say this: this interview was done sort of on the fly while I was traveling um, as a podcaster. You need to need to be ready for things like this, and the opportunity to interview Andrew came up, and I was on the road. I think I might have been at my parents' house and. So my audio is sort of iffy. I sound sort of echoey and distant. You may hear some noise in the background. I am, I apologize for that. But hey, to get a good interview, you got to take take advantage of the opportunity when you can. So I did. The material is what matters, of course. Enjoy my interview with Andrew, and I will be back for reflections afterwards.
2: You now, Growing up as a child, I grew up with an older brother who was two years older than me. And he was more like a a father figure than anything. I was raised in a a very rough childhood. Um, My mother was actually a prostitute and a stripper. And we were raised in motel rooms, trailer parks, apartments, homes. We moved every two years. Um, She cheated on every man she was ever with. So we did a lot of moving around. She was never really a mom. And my dad wasn't around due to the fact that she wouldn't let him be around. So all I really had growing up was my older brother and he was kind of my role model. And, um, we got in a lot of trouble, in our teenage years, drugs and alcohol and fighting and all that. But I always, he always had my back. And, uh, when I was, uh, 17 years old, he decided he was going to join the army. So he joined, I believe it was an Oh five, Oh four, Oh five. And he joined the 82nd airborne infantry. And, uh, when he joined I was kinda of lost in what I wanted to do. I didn't have anywhere to live, so I ended up having to drop out of high school because I no longer I left living with my mother after he joined and I moved in with my aunt. Couldn't she couldn't get me to school, I couldn't get to school, she needed help with bills. So I dropped out, got two part time jobs, lived that life for a little while and still partied a lot, got my own place eventually and Got to the point to where I was partying so much to where I couldn't even pay my rent. And that's when I decided I wanted to go visit my brother and see what the army was like. I go and visit him, and he takes me to the barracks, lets me meet all his friends. And it's in that moment that I realized that what he did, his job, was like making his own family. Um, the guys in there were like this amazing family. And it was just perfect. He was... uh I went to go visit, and and it was a family. You know, they they fought each other, and then they made up, and it was a big, dysfunctional family, and that's all we wanted as kids. And I thought, you know what, this is the way to stop me from making the decisions of my punk teenage life and all that. So I joined, and I made my own little family while I was in the Army. You know, I had my, my friends who I saw as brothers, and we then deployed from 08 to 09, and we went out to Iraq. First three months and I were back, I was a truck driver and I hated it. I absolutely hated my job because I wanted to do more than just drive a truck. I felt like a sitting duck. And uh, three months into it, my sergeant came up to me and asked me if I wanted to be lead gunner uh, for the convoys. And I said, Hell yeah, I want to be a lead gunner. <laughs> so he, he taught me all the rules of engagement, the 50 cal machine gun, um, how to work it, how to clean it, all that. And I started, I was lead gunner for the remaining nine months of deployment. And I absolutely loved it. You know, it was perfect. And I felt like I was finally responsible for something. And and I had a higher purpose in life. Because growing up in the atmosphere that we grew up in, you kind of feel like that's where you're going to be stuck in. You're just stuck in this horrible life. And this is just who you have to end up being. And I realized that I, I had control of my own life. And I could change that. So they gave me a higher purpose, and I followed it up until um, the end of my deployment, probably about three months before we were going to come home, an MP convoy was hit. And uh, I wasn't there when it was hit. None of us were. Um, it wasn't our company. But uh, on the way back, they told us that there was 3KIA, and there was an explosion. Well, we get back to base, and they're covering this truck up with a tarp. And we've seen a lot of blown-up trucks in this past year that we've been there. But nothing is nothing that they had to cover up with the tarp. And they pull us into formation. They tell us what happened. So what happened was there was a, um, a bomb attached to a tree facing downwards. I believe it was the EFP. And um, as a trigger squeeze release. And they released at the perfect time to where it went into the lead gunner's hatch into the vehicle. And it was an MRAP. And it, it took out everybody inside that MRAP. And when they told me this, the first thing I thought was that could have been my truck. And I felt like, you know, when you get to that 90-day mark of deployment, you start getting a little more concerned about what you're going to do when you get home other than what's going to happen during war. And, uh, so, you know, everybody's thinking about, I'm going to go get drunk, I'm going to take my girl out for a dinner, all that, instead of, let me look keep an eye out for the IEDs and stuff like that. Yeah. So, uh... They told us everything that happened. They said, do not, "Do not go look inside of that truck." Everyone said, "Roger." Everyone went hit the showers, hit the bed. I waited till everyone was gone, and I went to that truck. Now, the reason I looked inside that truck, it was not like highway curiosity. You know, you see a wreck on the highway, you rev- people rubberneck because they want to see what happened and they want to see if they can see a dead person. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. But the reason I looked is because I felt like I was being I wasn't being as aware as I needed to. Right. And I felt like maybe the war wasn't real enough. Because as Lee gunner, your job is to keep everybody safe. You're supposed to see everything before anyone else does. And you're supposed to stop it. And uh, so I felt like I, w- I was getting a little off track. And so I went and go. I went to this truck, pulled up the tarp, opened the door for about a split second, closed it, pulled down the tarp, and I threw up everywhere. And what I saw inside that truck was The worst thing I'll probably ever see in my life. And it was in that moment that I felt like I made a huge mistake by looking inside of it. Now, I wish I could say by looking inside of it, you know, I became more aware, more paranoid. I paid closer attention, and maybe I did. Maybe more things didn't happen because I did that. But I'll never know the answer to that question. Um, But I do know that, you know, nothing really started, nightmares never really started until I got home and decompressed. And that's when my mind finally allowed it to kind of sink in. And, uh. Nightmares about what? uh, About what I saw inside that truck. But, what you saw saw inside 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 that truck? Yeah, so, you know, I I saw, um, a lot of blood and the smells and everything. It it was bad. And, um, so whenever I'd, I'd have these nightmares, it was different though. It wasn't just, me reliving looking inside that truck in my nightmares, it was my, my brother inside that truck. It was my girlfriend inside that truck. You know, it was whoever I cared the most about in that time of my life that was inside that truck in my nightmares. And um the nightmares were getting worse and worse every day. And I, I would know that I was in my dreams, but I'd be stuck in it. I couldn't wake myself up. So it was like every day I'm 22 years old and every day I have to... Well, i was twenty one going on twenty two and every day I have to relive the worst thing I've ever seen in my life and it got exhausting so i went i turned to alcohol and i I did it what I do is i called it self medicating um now I drank a lot and uh in order to black out so I could get some sleep so I drink to the point of blackout every night so that I could finally get some sleep. I'd only sleep four or five hours a night um go to work hungover, uh, got threatened to be put into, um, AA and ASAP and all that. And, uh,
0: so you were, you were drinking, you were drinking to the point where you could sleep without any awareness of what you're dreaming.
2: Right. I got to the drunk, I got drunk to the point where I didn't even know what happened the night before. Okay. So that, you know, of course I didn't remember anything in my dreams either because I was drunk. Yeah. And, um, it was a couple months into it that I woke up on a, I think it was a Thursday morning on a beach in Hawaii, because I was based in Hawaii. And I was on a beach in Hawaii, four o'clock in the morning on a weekday, on a Thursday, a hundred yards away from a police station. I wake up my own vomit and I'm downtown. I have to be in formation by six o'clock in the morning. And it was right then that I realized I, I gotta get some help, you know, and, I tell everybody, I don't feel like I was an alcoholic. I feel like that was just my way of self-medicating. Right. I, I was depending on alcohol to fix my problems, and all it was was a temporary fix. And um, so I go and I see, I see a counselor and start getting help, and I'm seeing her for about two months, twice a week. Okay, okay.
0: How, did you, how did you seek out that counselor?
2: I just went in and told them that uh, I had to go to an appointment. And when I went to this appointment, I, uh, by
0: them you mean, you mean your unit?
2: Yeah. I went and told my unit, I, okay. I had to go to a doctor's appointment. They asked for an appointment slip and I said, I'd bring one back because I didn't want to tell anyone, Hey, I'm going to go see a counselor. Yeah. Uh, and, and,
0: and why, I, and why not? Were you, were you, were you I,
2: trying to avoid so the stigma. Huh? Yeah. I was so concerned about what people would think because yeah. everybody else in my unit seemed to be fine. Um, And that's one thing that I've realized is that when we all come back, you know, we we go to Iraq together, but we don't come home together. Yeah. Everybody kind of does their own thing and handles everything their own way. And um, you don't feel like you can share that with anyone else because you're worried about people, about being weak because everybody else seems so strong around you. And it seems like you're the only one that has the issues. So that's why I didn't want to tell anyone. And I go and see this counselor and now my unit knows I'm going to see a counselor because I have to show appointment slips and it says mental health. And um but they're not giving me a hard time about it at that at that point. And so I'm going to see this counselor and what she does is um two months into it she tells what she has me do every time I go in is she has me repeat the story very detailed, like every minute detail every time. And Two months into it, I go in, and she asked me to repeat the story again, and I get mad, and I start yelling at her. I'm asking her, why is she making me repeat this? And um, she tells me, she asks me, well, how have you been sleeping? And I realized when she asked that, that I had been sleeping a lot better. I mean, I wasn't getting eight hours, but I, I wasn't having nightmares as much. Right. And she told me what she was doing was uh, making me relive the situation over and over again so that my mind will come to terms with what happened. And realized that I cannot change what happened. You know, she she was just trying to get me to the point to realize that, you know, I can't change what happened. It's never going to be deleted out of my mind. But I can numb myself to it. And uh, and I realized that it was working. But at that appointment, she gave me a profile, which is a piece of paper, as you know. Um, and it says, this soldier cannot have a weapon for this amount of days. Okay. And now, in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I just went from lead gunner with a 50 cal machine gun in Iraq where my only safety was my thumbs to not even be able to carry an M4 rifle. You know, and it's embarrassing when you look at that paper because you go from, you know, the most dangerous job to where they won't even let you hold a rifle. And, um, at that point, I was embarrassed by it, but I thought, you know what? This is probably a good idea. I don't need to be going to firing ranges. and and don't need anything to trigger. I just need to fix myself first. And um, it wasn't that I felt like I'd never be able to do it. It was just I needed more time to come to terms with everything and and get control of my mental stability. And uh, so I take this paper to my first sergeant who wasn't... Now, this first sergeant wasn't the same one that deployed with us. This first sergeant had never been deployed before. And I take this paper to this first sergeant and show it to her. And she calls me out in front of a bunch of people and says, puts her hand on my shoulder and says, this right here is a piece of shit soldier because he can no longer carry a weapon. And wow. in that point, that was the most embarrassing embarrassment I've ever had in my life because this was all my peers. Most of the people I deployed with it was their second deployment. So they ETS or they PCS. They moved to different bases. They went home. So all these, she did this in front of a bunch of new, new soldiers. Um, people who I was training on 50 cows, who I was training on deployment and getting them ready. Because I was getting out either way. You know, I was never planning on staying in. Um, but she did that in front of all of my peers. And it was in that moment that that was the last time I ever saw a counselor. Because I was made fun of for seeking help. And um, she thought that I was faking it. And But the hardest part was she wasn't there for what I did. You know, she wasn't there for me being a lead gunner. She had no idea of what kind of soldier I was. She made a call because of what a piece of paper said from a psychologist. And um, after that, I started kind of just pushing everything down and ignoring it. I didn't go back to alcohol. But I just pushed everything down. And um, what I say in all my speeches is what it was like was it was like shaking a Coke can for six months. And all it needed was that one tab to be popped just a little bit for it to explode. Were you getting nightmares again? And, yeah, uh, nightmares. And it's just I was trying to ignore everything and tell myself over time it'll just go away. You know, you want to believe that. It's just, you want to believe it's kind of like a scratch It's going to itch. It's going to scab over, and it will scar, and it'll be fine. But you know, and they've done statistics and and studying on it. And the average soldier commits suicide with, um, right after 365 days from being back from deployment. And their belief is that it's because everyone gives themselves a year to try and get better.
0: Yeah.
2: And after that year, they realize nothing's changing. And they feel like, okay, if this isn't gonna change in a year, this is gonna be the rest of my life.
0: Yeah, because yeah, so you've, my, you've experienced I, an entire calendar year with this trauma, and after a year, you realize that you may have to go through all of those, all of those steps, all those holidays, all those events, all of those, um, you know, things that we experience in a calendar year, you have to go through all that again with this same trauma on your mind.
2: Right, and at at 21, 22 years old, you know, yeah. you're really and you're looking on social media and you see all your friends graduating college and partying or doing all this stuff that you can't do because you're too paranoid. Like at 22, I could no longer go to concerts or go dancing because it was too crowded. And I would have anxiety attacks and not be able to breathe because I can't see everyone in the room and see where they are and what they're doing. and you- I mean, I would get to the points where my, my blood would feel like it was boiling. I would start sweating. I'd have a hard time breathing. I'd have to leave every time I went somewhere. And so you're 22 years old. You're supposed to be out doing social things. And I couldn't. You know, I couldn't do what the normal 22-year-old back home could do. And uh so I think it was uh, November 21st. We went out to a beach um, camping with a big group of friends. I was dating a girl at the time. Or thinking about dating a girl at the time. And uh <laughs> woke up and had an issue with one of my friends because we got in an argument over this girl. And um, I got home after getting in a fight with one of my good friends. And it just right then, uh, I think it was just the last straw. There was that last little pop that, that needed to happen. And everything... I walked into my front door and it felt like a big wave hit me. I mean, it felt like all the emotions that I could possibly have hit me all at one time. What I say is opening that front door to my house was like opening Pandora's box of emotions and it all just flowed in. Um, You know, the things that went through my mind were the fact that I couldn't go out and go dance. I couldn't take a girl out to a restaurant because I'd have to wait for an hour for that corner booth. I couldn't, um, sleep without having nightmares of this truck and, and seeing my brother die. And like, I couldn't live my life anymore. You know, I, I didn't feel like I had a life anymore. And what I tell everybody is that at that point in my life, when I would look in the mirror, I wouldn't see myself. I would see a stranger. I would look into my eyes looking for who, for me and I couldn't find me. And I felt like I was just some monster now and, and someone that I couldn't handle being anymore. And um it was in that moment that I decided that I wanted to take my life. Because and that's something I also talk about is I tell people suicide is not people wanting to end their lives, it's wanting to end their pain. Yep. Um Yep. You know, I didn't want I didn't want to take my own life. I just wanted to stop feeling the pain. I wanted I mean, there'd be nights where I woke up from my nightmare crying so hard that it hurt in my stomach. And it was just so much pain and I couldn't deal with it anymore and um, so that's when I decided I was going to take my life and I go upstairs to my bedroom and I try to find something I think to myself do I have a gun and luckily I don't have a gun in my house at that time.
0: Yeah, we're probably not having yeah. this conversation if you did.
2: Do what? Yeah, yeah, exactly and that's that's what I tell people is that if I would have had a gun in my house that day, I would not be here because I had the guts to do it. Yeah. I would have pulled trigger. There's no question on my. And, and
0: I say it casually like that because um, you know I, I uh, the, the the first episode of the of the project tells my own story, and there was a there was an occasion where that would have been that would have been true for me as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, when you're in that that point of mind frame, what I tell everybody is it's like your mm-hmm. your mind is racing, trying to find something to live for. Yep. But you can't you can't find any? I mean. There's no positive thoughts I went through my mind that day. I didn't think about how it would hurt my brother or how it would hurt my friends. All I thought about was all this bad, all the bad things. And um, so, since I couldn't find a gun, I, I, uh, I always kept a knife by my bed. So I picked up my knife and I go downstairs to my kitchen and or into my living room. I put this knife on the coffee table and I look at it and I think to myself, "Okay, so I take this knife." I know if I cut upwards, it's gonna make me bleed out. But I think to myself, that sounds too painful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but I mean it's like it's 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 weird how you how much thought gets put into like. Well, I really, I kind of want to do this, but I don't want to suffer while I go through the whole thing. Like if I'm gonna <laughs> if I'm gonna end my life, I'd really prefer this to be quick and simple.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like if and it doesn't thought- work,
0: it's gonna. It, I, I don't want to have a jacked
2: up arms <laughs> right? yeah because i'm thinking to myself you know and it goes back to what i just said i don't i don't want to feel more pain i want to end it yeah, and cutting exactly. myself open and bleeding out sounds like a lot of pain so i i walk away from that knife i go into my kitchen and i find all my pill bottles i have four pill bottles um one was Wellbutrin, which is antidepressants one is ambien which is sleeping medication um another the other two are Motrin and Ibuprofen, you know, Ranger candy that the army gives you for a broken arm. And, uh, it was in that moment that I, I decided, alright, this is, this is how to do it. If I take the Ambient first, followed up by all the other pills, the Ambient will kick in first, I'll fall asleep and I just won't wake up. You know, that's what went through my mind is, I'll just fall asleep and not wake up. That sounds painless and perfect. And, uh, so that day I, I take about 120 pills within three minutes. And I follow it up by by two bottles of beer. And I drink the beer because I think, all right, the beer will just en- enhance the yeah. the drugs. I don't know anything about science, but I'm just thinking, how can I speed up this process? And uh and then I go sit on my couch, and I'm waiting for it to kick in. And I look at the knife again, and all of a sudden, anger takes over. And I just become very angry because... I'm mad because I feel like I have to take my own life. Like, this is the only way to stop the pain. There's no other options. I've tried all the other options. They didn't work out. This is the only choice. And I get mad because I know I'm only 22 years old at this point. And I'm about to die because I can't live like this anymore. I can't live in this pain and this suffering. And, uh, I go on a rampage throughout my house. And I put holes in all my walls. And, uh... I really messed up my right hand, and then as I, I think I I fractured, I did a boxer's fracture on my hand by hitting one of the walls, and at that point, when I felt that pain, it gave me a second, I took a deep breath, and as I took that deep breath, it felt like someone went into my body and took the breath out of me, like they grabbed it out of my chest, and it was in that moment that I started fading, and I was like, the thought that went through my mind, is, oh shit, it's happening. It's really happening right now. And uh, that's when I realized I started having an anxiety attack because I was like, I'm not ready. I realized right in that moment, I just made the biggest mistake of my life. I was like, oh, crap. I mean, I felt like it was too late. There goes my life. And uh, so in that moment, I pick up the phone, I dial 911, and I hear the person talk. And all I remember saying is help, and I black out. Now, I don't know if I passed out at this point. I don't know anything. But at that point, everything went black. And two days later, I wake up and I'm in the ICU at Triple Army Medical Center. And I've got all these tubes connected to me. I've got coal all over me. And I've got a catheter in. You have what all over me? I mean, really, everything just went black. And I woke up in the hospital two days later. I look over and my sergeant's sitting right there. And I asked him what happened and he told me that, um, he got a phone call from the neighbor saying the ambulance was at our house and, um, it was picking me up and she didn't know what was going on. So we got to the nearest, uh, they took me to the closest civilian hospital at that point and, um, they got me hooked up and, uh, he said when they, when he got there, they were, told him to follow them. They had to put me in the ambulance to transfer me over to Triple Medical Center where they had to shove a tube down into my throat and pump my stomach full of coal because I wouldn't wake up to because normally you drink a coal what they call a coal martini, but they couldn't get me to wake up so they had to shove a tube down my throat into my stomach to pump my body full of coal. And um, while I was there passed out, um, they had to have my commander call my brother and the commander calls my brother and he's he's crying while he's uh, calling my brother. is the same commander who was who deployed with me. Yeah. And uh, he told him, your brother just took a bunch of pills, tried to take his own life, and he's probably not going to make it. Um, you may want to try to get out here. But my brother's in Texas. I'm in Hawaii. It's an eight-hour flight. I mean, by the time he got there, I'd probably be dead anyways. So my brother didn't have the money, didn't have time to deal with Red Cross. So we were just... He was just sitting by the phone waiting to hear if I was dead or not. And, you know, this really hurt my brother because our whole life, it was me and my brother against the world. And now I made it through a year of deployment, and I ended up killing myself in his mind. And uh, but I woke up, and my sergeant told me that, that. He told me to call my brother. I called him. And this is when my whole life changed. Is I called my brother, and he cussed me out. Then he told me how much he loved me. And uh he asked me why I did it. And I told him you know, I've been struggling with what I saw in Iraq. And I never told anyone else besides my counselor about what I did in Iraq, about looking inside that truck. And people ask why. And I tell them because I was disobeying a direct order. I was so worried about getting in trouble that I didn't want to do that. And uh so I never told anyone besides my counselor about what I had done. And so I finally told him. And he said, why didn't you... Share this with me. Why didn't you tell me? Um, I've been in Afghanistan. I did 16 months out there. I was in hand-to-hand combat, you know, and I, I told him, I said, that's exactly it. You went through the real stuff. I was never in hand-to-hand combat. You know, I wasn't in these firefights that you were in. And he was like, you know what? And this is exactly what he said, and this is exactly what changed my whole mind, my whole opinion on everything. He said that I'm going to talk to you right now as a veteran, not as your brother. And he said, the worst thing that you've seen is the worst thing that you've seen. And if you weren't affected by what you saw, I'd be worried about you. And he went through this whole spiel. And what he did was he gave me permission to have feelings about what I saw. For the first time in my life, since all this has happened, someone gave me permission to feel. And it was like getting a whole weight off of my chest. Finally, I wasn't being made fun of. I wasn't being called out. Someone was just listening and telling me it was okay to feel the way that I feel. And not just someone, not just my brother, but someone who's been there and done it. And you know, they gave me that permission. And that's when my whole life turned around. And I, uh, I got out of the army a few months later. I got out on my normal ETS date. I didn't get med boarded or anything. Um, I was diagnosed with PTSD at the, uh, they made me do 72 hours, 72 hours in a mental health, the mental institution. And um, they diagnosed me with PTSD there. And then uh got out a few months later, got home, did a year of jumping in between jobs, trying to find my purpose in life. And then I heard the statistics released in 2013, um, where they said in 2012, 22 veterans a day and one active duty soldier a day took their own lives. Yep. And that just clicked something in me. And it was right then that I felt like that's why I was alive. That's why I lived. is because other people feel exactly how I felt. I didn't realize that. I felt like I was alone, you know. And I saw right then when I heard those numbers that, wow, you know, this is happening all over the place. It wasn't just me. And so I wrote a book, Welcoming Your Soldier Home. And after I wrote the book, I didn't feel like that was enough. So I did a YouTube video about sharing this story that I'm telling you right now. And that video went viral in the media, and I did a few media interviews, got my first speaking engagement in New Orleans. I never planned on being a speaker. Um, I just was invited by a nonprofit in New Orleans. So I went out there, spoke, and I loved it. You know, I absolutely loved it. I met a mother out there who her son had just shot himself the year before um, after coming home from Iraq. And I saw her while I was speaking, and she was just crying her heart out while I was speaking. And it was right then that I realized, if I could share this story with veterans and service members, I could make a difference. You know, I I could stop this. And I could stop families from having to go through this, from losing their kids. Because her son was 21 when he killed himself. You know, that that guy had so much more of a life to live, but he couldn't handle it anymore. So... I kept doing speaking engagements, went on a tour across the country, um, got donations from the foundation because they saw me in the paper, did this tour, uh, met a producer, and I told her, hey, I want to make a documentary out of this because I have, after all my speeches, these veterans come up and share their suicide attempt stories with me. And I was just amazed at, because they have the numbers for the amount of people who have actually have actually committed suicide, but they don't have the numbers for people who have attempted. Exactly. And I mean, I can only imagine, I can only imagine how many people have actually attempted suicide. That's why I, I saw you through someone else and they sent me your link to your, your crowdfunding and I was just amazed because I was like, this is exactly what I'm doing, but podcast style. Yep. And I, I thought it was great. And, um, but you know, the numbers that they have, those 22 veterans a day and the one soldier a day. Those are like the, They only take the numbers of the people who are obviously took their own lives. They don't count the death by cop, um, death by, um, reckless driving, things like that. So there's, the numbers are much higher than what they say they are. And, um, these are just the basic numbers. And what I just learned was, um, Texas, North Carolina, and California VAs don't, um, don't put in numbers for the amount of suicides of veterans. And those are the three biggest military states. And so you got to imagine, you know, the three biggest states that are full of veterans aren't putting in the veteran suicide numbers, so it's probably much higher than 22 a day. And um, so I, after doing these speeches and hearing these attempt stories, I wanted to make a documentary not just about me. This documentary is not about me. It's about all of us. It's about everyone who has attempted suicide or considered suicide or struggled coming home and we're making this film because i feel like these people who aren't able to make it out to my speeches or hear my story they can do it from the comfort of their own couch and yep. their own home you know they don't have to go out and and show people that they're trying to get help they can do it from home and uh, and see these all different kind of generations. I mean, in our film, we've got Korean War, we've got Vietnam War, we've got Marines, Air Force, Army, Navy. I mean, it's for everybody. So you can see everybody, no matter what generation, what branch, what sex, everybody struggles with this, and it's normal. It's it's okay to struggle. It's just not okay to take your own life. And um, this is kind of a film to give hope, right? And and that's that's how this whole project started.
0: Absolutely. That's that's um. That's very cool. And I'm glad that uh, that, that's being done. Um, I'm glad when I, when I talked about this project with people, um, I often got questioned like why, you know, yeah, I feel like a video would be a better way. And, you know, I think, you know, there are some people and I'm glad you're finding them that are willing to talk in front of a camera, but a lot of people don't want that sort of exposure. Um, and so I, knowing that there was going to be people like you, they were going to be able to take this to, to video. I want, you know, I want to stick, I wanted to, remain with audio and allow people who want to stay anonymous and want to stay sort of hidden um, behind a microphone, give them an opportunity to share their stories as well. So I'm glad that we have uh, multimedia projects going on to uh, to allow people to share their stories. And it's important to, you know, not only to let the listener know, hey, someone else is, is experiencing this, but to let the, the person who's sharing their story, to let them know your story matters.
2: Exactly. I mean, and, you know, I tell people that by me sharing my story, because that's what I do in my speaking engagements. I don't do PowerPoint presentations. I don't do these are the signs of suicide. This is how you stop it. I don't do that. What I do is I share my personal story. And I tell people this is kind of like counseling for me. This is helping me Um, just by sharing my story. That has helped me out a lot. So by me helping other people, it's also helping myself.
0: Something that was really interesting about this particular conversation between Andrew and I, how our experiences, sort of how we had a laughable approach to some of the things that we had experienced or looking back at what had happened, and it seems almost insensitive to find jest in in those experiences, in the attempts, the thoughts, and stuff like that, but it's interesting that when it's something that you go through, you become almost I mean you almost become comfortable with it in the sense that I'm that you're used to it right And so it sort of becomes uh, just a way of thinking And when you recover, looking back at what you went through, I mean it's still a serious topic, and other people are going to receive it uh, you know a more seriously probably than you're really going to view it it's uh, you know when you go through something anything you know that's uh, that's upsetting or traumatic sometimes the more we share it, the more we think about it, the more uh, we recall it sometimes it sort of gets uh, you know we think like oh it's not that big of a deal, but you know obviously it is. Uh, but I think this is another great, com- uh, great example similar to the conversation I had with Mark Wade. I think this is another great example of how this conversation doesn't have to be difficult. This conversation doesn't have to be alarming. Um, while the and so we, obviously we went into this knowing that he had attempted suicide, I had attempted suicide, so we were primed for the conversation so you know this is obviously not one um that you this is probably isn't like one you would have when you first reach out to someone or you first talk to somebody but you'd be really uh you know for the veterans out there or anybody who has experienced suicidal behavior and have thought about or has attempted suicide you'd be surprised at how comfortable the conversation can be and how casually someone who's been through the same thing is going to take it um, you know, obviously at first there's going to be a sense of uh, a sense of seriousness of like they want to make sure that you feel comfortable and they want to make sure that you know that they find it serious. But as soon as you get into that conversation, you start getting into the same routine that that Andrew and I did, where you're sort of making jokes about your own attempt on suicide or you know your thoughts about suicide, and uh, you know, and it, it it's it's fascinating to to, to see how. That mindset and how that behavior almost, you know, has become uh, how it's become so comfortable in in some people's lives. Uh, you know, a couple of things that I think that were really important that that Andrew brought up. Um, you know, one, you know, we don't want to feel any more pain. You know, we want to end it. And um, I'm I'm going to play a snippet here soon from uh, from Dr. Clemens who talks about a couple myths that come along with uh, with suicide and um, you know at the end, you know she mentions that you know people just don't want to feel any more pain. And I, I may have even played this snippet before, but I think it's important to really land that point home. Um, and then it's probably the most important thing, the worst you experienced in any part of life is your worst. And don't let anybody say, "Well, you've been through worse, because maybe you haven't. Uh, you know, maybe maybe this is your worst. Don't let anybody discount um, a horrible experience, a traumatic experience, a dark part of your life by trying to challenge you with what well, you've been through worse. And also, don't let yourself discount how badly you feel about something because you assume someone else has been through worse than you have because whether or not whether or not anybody else has been through worse or even if you know that you like know, you know Andrew's brother has been through worse um, you know I have friends that have definitely seen more traumatic experiences in combat than I've ever experienced but your worst is your worst that's your rock bottom and if that's where you are you have to recognize it and you have to come forward and admit it and You can't just you just can't think. Well, my floor isn't as far down as theirs. You know, I need to wait till I'm that far down before I reach out or before this becomes something serious. If it's your worst, it's your worst, and that needs to be recognized and it needs to be dealt with, no matter how deep or shallow that floor is. So the resource before I play uh, Tracy's uh, Tracy Clemens. Uh, snippet the resource is actually the taps hotline Um, you know i think uh, you know the the taps the you know for people who don't know it's the uh tragedy assistance program for survivors um you can go to taps.org to get a bunch of information on them they have a hotline 24 7 1-800- 959-8277 Nine five nine eight two seven seven, and I'm telling you, this is for anybody who is—you know, just can't sleep at night, or you're you're ha- you're going through mental torment. I'm telling you, it's—I think that these—I think one reason, one way these hotlines aren't being used well enough is this is someone who doesn't know you. This is a neutral third party who can just listen to whatever you're going through. They may be able to connect you with someone. Maybe you don't need that. That's fine. They're just there to listen. Maybe you maybe you come up and be like, look, I'm gonna start talking, don't say anything. However you need to communicate what's going on, this is a neutral ear for you to listen to and they are trained professionals to be able to help help guide you should you want any more assistance. So again, the TAPS hotline one eight hundred nine five nine eight two seven seven or taps.org if you want more information on organization. I think it's really uh it's really it's really important that uh, that that a resource like that Gets put out there. Um, so here's here's the snippet. Um, here's my here's a, the a couple of myths from Dr. Clemens and driving home that point that people you know they don't want to kill themselves. They just want to end their pain. Um.
1: um and so. You know another myth that I um, have often heard and and is in the media and different things, um, and, and I've even heard sometimes among mental health professionals, um, to be honest with you, um, not always, but is that people who talk about suicide are just trying to get attention, and, and that that if they talk about it, that means they're not going to do it.
0: Um, what advice would you give someone if they're hearing if someone says you know like you said that they're communicating, however it may be. To not dismiss it just because they're laughing again or something like that,
1: right? Yeah, I, I think it's important to remember that you know um, that it that it is a cry for help um, when somebody has. Um, verbalizes these warning signs, um, whether that means, again, verbally, direct verbal statements or in, more indirect behaviors or um, just, you know, showing increased symptoms of depression and crying and, and you know, hopelessness and helplessness, things like that. I, I always err on the side of taking that very seriously every single time. Um, I think that, you know, it is, it is in fact a cry for help, um, and it doesn't mean someone's just trying to get attention. Um, most people who, who think about suicide, who um, attempt suicide and even die by suicide at the time that they're in a crisis are very ambivalent um, about actually dying. Um, It goes against everything in our our nature to actually um, die by suicide, to kill ourselves. Um, And so I would say the majority of people really haven't made that decision um, fully that they're 100% know they want to die. Most people are ambivalent. and, And what it's about instead is relief. They're looking for a way to have relief from emotional pain. Um, so it's not so much about actually wanting to die as it is wanting to have relief um, and to get away and to and to experience to stop experiencing the emotional pain that they're experiencing
0: all right everybody thank you for listening it was another powerful and honest conversation and story being shared by another veteran who has been through suicidal behavior i hope by now, we're starting to see the trend, the whole point of the one too many project, the one comma, two comma many. Once we realize that there's a few stories, we discover that there's many stories to be told about this. If you have a story that you would like to share, one too many project dot com, o n e E, the number two, many project dot com. There's a contact form there. You can get a hold of me. I would be I'd be honored to share your story here on the program thank you for listening and i'll see you next week